begin a brand new series today. Did you know that we are five Sundays, counting today, from Easter Sunday? That's pretty awesome. Uh, Easter is really one of the, the high and holy days of the entire calendar year. And so we are actually going to begin a brand new series that's going to lead us up to our Easter celebration. And this series is inspired by a moment that happened the night before, in the journey before uh, Jesus' death, just as he was uh, on that kind of real serious walk journey towards the cross and ultimately toward the resurrection. I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read to you a chunk of this passage of, or this chapter of Scripture today from the CSB translation. And uh, it's going to start in verse 57. So just for context here, Jesus has been unjustly arrested. He's been dragged into what is actually an illegal trial. They were holding this trial at nighttime. They were doing all kinds of big no-no sorts of things in order to get Jesus ultimately to the cross. And there was a bunch of, um, of just unjust activity in the middle of this moment. And so what I want to read to you is a story drawn out from the middle of that trial uh, that we begin to see Jesus. And we're going to watch for some of the way he reacts as we're beginning this brand new series. So it says in verse 57, this is uh, Matthew chapter 26. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. So these are the religious leaders who had been trying to find a reason to get rid of Jesus for a while now. Peter was following him at a distance right on the high priest's courtyard. Now, Peter's relevancy in that story is because Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And then the next thing that happens after the story I'm reading you right now is Exactly that. Peter denies Jesus three times. We're not going to read that today, and we'll focus on that in this series, but just so you have it in this context. So, Jesus went in and was sitting uh, with the servants to see, or Peter rather, went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. Verse 59 The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, Two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, Jesus did actually say those words. He was actually talking about himself being the temple of God and how it would be rebuilt in three. He's making a prophetic allusion to his own death and resurrection while also talking about something historical that was going to happen uh, at some other point. But we're not going to get into all of that right now. Just, just to say that we're using... Jesus' words, misunderstanding what he was talking about and saying, this guy said he's a terrorist. He's going to destroy the temple? Big no-no, right? So that's what they were going to use to get him to, uh, to die. Verse 62, we'll pick it up. It says, the high priest stood up and said, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, because he felt like Jesus was committing blasphemy in that moment. He tore his robes and he said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? In other words, he's saying, this is enough, we got him, ha! That was his ha ah, moment. 
So he says, see, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat on his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? The story goes on. That's where it turns a corner to back out to the courtyard. You see Peter. He denies Jesus three times just as Jesus is coming out uh, to the next portion of his journey towards the cross. And if you've ever seen any of the moments, Peter has now denied him three times. He hears the, the rooster crow. And in the films, they tend to depict this moment as this incredibly tense and sad moment where the man who denied that he would deny Jesus has just denied him three times while all of a sudden he then sees Jesus being pulled out. And maybe you can relate to that at some point. You've been the denier. Maybe you can relate to in your own journey, you've been the one who has mocked Jesus. And whatever place you find yourself in your relationship to Jesus, I I want to invite you to remember as we dig into the topic of this series today, I want to invite you to remember that wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you bring into this place today, Jesus loves you. And the story of the road to the cross is affirmation that he loves you, no matter what. His love is unstoppable. Amen? Jesus, as we begin this new teaching series over the next several weeks, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly what you've said and what you are saying to our church. God, help us to have ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts open to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Jesus is unjustly arrested. He's dragged into this illegal trial. And the line of that story that I read to you today that I want you to focus on is found in verse 63, where it says, but Jesus kept silent. Now, in some translations, it actually reads, Jesus held his peace. And this is because the original Greek word or phrasing that Matthew uses there is a word which can be translated to be silent or to hold one's peace. And if you've ever heard the expression to hold your peace before, it is synonymous with the idea that you're not going to say anything. You're not going to make an argument. You're not going to try to prove a point. You're just, I'm holding my peace. I'm not going to say anything and I'm not going to fight. This is the way Jesus stood in this moment, in the middle of an illegal, unjust trial. So the first question that obviously we want to engage when we look at Jesus is, how in the world is he a person who can hold his peace when he's on the journey to his own death? He knows what's coming. How did he hold his peace? Now, the easy answer is because he's God. 50% of that is correct, right? That's half an answer. But what we know about Jesus is he was 100% God while also being 100% human. So there was a God part of Jesus that certainly would have been, I mean, he is the Prince of Peace. But we also know as we study scripture that it says that Jesus laid down his attributes of being God. And there's all the power that he he willingly surrendered so that he could come and be 100% man. So what we really want to wrestle with is how in the world did Jesus keep his peace and not just give the, well, because he was God answer. I would argue that there's something deeper here to examine. And furthermore, I would argue that Jesus is able to hold his peace on the way to his own death because he was a man of discipline before the road to the cross began. And and this is important for us to pay attention to, by the way. How did Jesus hold his peace on on the road to his cross? Because Jesus tells his disciples that we're supposed to follow in his example. 
In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23, Jesus says to all of his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit if someone gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? What does Jesus tell us to do? Take up your cross and follow Follow in my example. Friends, I have news for you that to be a follower of Jesus means that you have agreed to take up Jesus' example, his way of living, and walk in his footsteps to your own death. That there is something of dying to the world, dying to the life of comfort, dying to always having to have it our way, and dying to try to be righteous by our own actions. We die to all of that. This is the kind of thing that Paul was talking about when he says, I die daily. And he was wrestling with that because he was saying, there's stuff in me that I don't even want to do, that I find myself doing. And the stuff I'd like to do, I have trouble doing it. But I need to discipline myself so that I can honor God with my physical body, with my life. So if we are called to carry our own cross, then we are called also, like Jesus, to be people who can hold our own peace. And that's ultimately the question that we want to wrestle with in this series. How do we hold our peace as we take up our cross and follow Jesus? So for the next two weeks, or four weeks rather, we're going to be in a series that we're calling How to Hold Your Peace. Now, this is incredibly relevant, not just because Easter is a few weeks away, but because we live in a world that is not at peace and is doing everything it possibly can to take your peace. We're called to be people of peace, though. Amen? So we're going to learn to follow Jesus' example by looking at spiritual disciplines that Jesus engaged in before the cross that enabled him on the journey to the cross and even on the cross to hold his peace. So what were the things that Jesus did in his life that empowered him to be a person of peace? And if we could do those things as well, then maybe we could hope to learn to be people of peace even on the journey to our own death or even as we are unjustly attacked or even if we're justly attacked, that we would be people who turn to God and hold our peace. So this week, we're going to look at one of, which will be one of four disciplines that we'll look at over the next several weeks. The discipline that we're going to look at this week is actually two, technically two disciplines that we're marrying together that most people, when they talk about these disciplines, usually tend to marry them together into one conversation. So this week, we're going to talk about Jesus's discipline of solitude and silence, which is really ironic considering the noise we were making like 10 minutes ago. But to begin in this series, we're going to begin each of these messages by looking at how Jesus practiced each of these disciplines. So let's take just a moment and look at the way that Jesus made a habit to withdraw in his practice of solitude and silence. Toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 5, Luke writes, The news about Jesus spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet, he would often withdraw to deserted places, and he prayed. And then still, at the end of his, of his earthly ministry, you get down to Luke 22, and starting in verse 39, Luke writes, Jesus went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. That as usual phrase is really important there because it tells you that this wasn't something he did 
in Luke 5 and then only again the second time in Luke 22 to withdraw from the crowds. It says he normally made a habit to withdraw. In fact, he spent time more than once on the Mount of Olives. And so it says he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. That's good for them. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Just for context, that story in Luke chapter 22 is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the story that really it's like after the Passover meal, they go to the garden, Jesus prays. We're going to talk a little bit about prayer next Sunday. Uh, but we're, So we're going to dig back into this story a little bit, I think. And, and then the next thing that happens is Jesus gets arrested, and then all of a sudden he's in front of this group of people who are spitting on him and slapping him. And what is he doing? He's holding his peace through the whole thing. So that puts us back into the story in context, right? Here's the point. Jesus made it a habit during his ministry to get alone with the Father, certainly to pray, which again, we'll talk about next Sunday, but also as anyone who's ever spent any kind of time alone, you know that when you're alone, what else, you're, you're not talking the whole time. You're also practicing silence, which was good. You were silent when I asked you that question. But Jesus spent regular time in silence. This was a habit of his ministry. Mark's gospel actually says something really interesting about Jesus' practice of silence and solitude. At the very beginning of, of the gospel of Mark, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. Which, just the subtlety of the way that the crowd comes and says, hey, people in this town are looking for you. They want you to come back and do more miracles and do some more teaching. And he goes, cool, let's leave town. Right? But in, in Mark and Luke's gospel, each of them are showing us that Jesus would withdraw almost as if to avoid the crowds which is really interesting when you think about the reason Jesus came and the number of times we actually see him getting away from the people that he came to be in the flesh with. But Mark makes, makes it clear that Jesus withdrew so that he could easily move on to the next place of his ministry. There's something about Jesus practicing solitude and silence that allowed him to be free enough to go wherever it was that the Father was leading him in each moment and not get stuck. So we can already begin to see that there's some benefits to solitude and silence. We're going to come back around to some benefits in a little bit. But before we get too deep into this conversation, I think we should come up for a breath of fresh air and, and just answer the question, what actually is solitude and silence? So let's define these terms for a minute. I'll give you some definitions that I would write for solitude and silence. I would define solitude as uninterrupted time in a distraction-free environment for the purpose of being alone with God. So this time has to be un uninterrupted. Parents, you're already thinking, that's not possible. It is possible. You put your children to bed, or you get up earlier than, than they are up. I have a daughter who wakes up earlier than I do sometimes, so I have to do my silence and solitude before uh, or after she goes to bed. Sharon likes to wake up before everyone else on the planet Earth, and so she gets her time of silence and solitude before Selah wakes up at too early in the morning. 
Um, so solitude is uninterrupted time of distraction-free environment for the purpose. So there's an intentionality of being alone with God. But, remi- but notice there in the middle, this is a time where you're not being distracted. Right? So this is the moment where uh, all of those games that you have on your phone or your tendency to check your social media account or look at your email or look at your calendar for what do you have going on today or catching up on all of your text messages so that you get them before you forget them, um, you put all of that aside. It's distraction free. Right? So that is, that is solitude. Silence then probably not hard to come up with a definition for, but the spiritual definition or the definition of the spiritual discipline of silence would be listening to God in quiet without interruption or input of words or noise. So you're not being interrupted in this time, but you're also not having any kind of input of words or noise. On my Spotify account, I have a playlist called Writing Background, and it's just a bunch of instrumental worship songs. And I usually write, in fact, 90% of all the sermons you've ever heard me preach, I was listening to that playlist while I wrote it, right? Uh, and it's funny because sometimes we'll get in the car on a Sunday morning or drive to church like this morning, and the girls wanted to listen to something upbeat. And so I plugged in my phone, and the first thing that started playing was this like really soft instrumental music. And Sharon was like, well, I guess we're listening to this. And then we changed the song. But that's, it's just in there. I, I'm constantly listening to that. But silence, that's not silence when I'm alone with God listening to something. Silence is when I'm alone with God uninterrupted without input of words or noise. And just for the record, reading a book counts as input of words. Okay? So this means no music, not even instrumental, no reading. It also means no praying. Some of you are having a hard time with that already. You don't pray when you practice silence. No talking, no humming, no singing. And for you Pentecostal folks, no speaking in tongues. I was having some students that I teach practice silence, and I heard one kind of murmuring. He's praying in tongues, and I thought, man, that's beautiful, but he's not doing the discipline, right? This wasn't the discipline of speaking in tongues right now. It was the discipline of silence. So you got to make sure you pull aside. Coach, you're not even talking in any way. That's silence. So solitude and silence is, the disi- is a discipline that's rooted in the advice from Psalm 46, verse 10, which says, be still and know that I am God. And that should be enough, Right? So that doesn't say be still and remind God that you know that he's God. It just says be still and know. So as a caveat, I'll just stand over here for a second and say that there's a distinct and subtle difference between um, solitude and isolation. Solitude is for a moment to get alone with God. Isolation is when you create uh, an entire lifestyle around how it's just me and God and nobody else. And when you, when you disconnect yourself from God's people, the next thing that happens is you, become, you begin to become disconnected from God. So isolation, bad. Solitude, good practice for moments in your life. right? But you don't live in solitude. You go to solitude. Okay. All right. So moving on then, now that we've defined our term, the question of the day is, well, one of the important questions, why in the world don't we do this incredible practice? If this is a good practice for us to be able to say that we would be still and know that God is God, why don't we do it? I would propose to you that one of the foundational reasons we don't practice solitude and silence is because we are addicted to noise. Look at your neighbor real quick and tell him, you're an addict. Okay, that didn't sound like speaking life at Life Church. So now, just to make it right, turn to him and say, but you can get free. 
Okay, I want you to consider some statistics that I, I've been kind of watching trends in this particular way. You, if you've been around for a few years at Life Church, you might have sh- heard me share these back in 2018. I'm going to share some, some old statistics, and we're going to update them today. In 2018, Americans, uh, d- American adults, these are people over the age of 18, spent on average 24.4 hours watching live TV each week. Just for the record, that number has plummeted. Nobody watches live TV anymore, but we have replaced that time with something else. So that was 2018, 24.4 hours of, watch, of live TV watching every week, 11 hours a day watching, listening to, or interacting with media, which includes TV, movies, live and streamed, applications on your devices, playing games, listening to the radio, music, or podcasts, or audiobooks. 11 hours a day in 2018. Just so so you don't have to do the math, I did it for you. That's, on average, somewhere around 77 hours a week in 2018. So out of seven days a week in 2018, the average American adult was spending three of those days every single week engaging with media. But then since 2018, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a moment just a couple years ago where all of a sudden everything stopped. Do you remember this? Okay, so guess what happened to the numbers of our media intake when the world stopped? Yeah, they went up. Okay, so let's look at the updated numbers. In 2019, those numbers were already trending upward at an average of 12 and a half hours of media consumption. So we'd gone up an hour and 23 minutes in one year. And then in 2020, that number actually jumped to 13 hours and 21 minutes. 13 hours a day. Engaging media. So as of July 2021, uh, you can see there's going to be a graphic up on the screen for you uh, from from eMarketer. They actually figured out the numbers that the average American adult spent in 2021 seven hours, 59 minutes a day just consuming what they called non-traditional media. So you can see there the number of, like TV is kind of down and it's going down further. Radio, newspaper, magazine, other traditional media, all that stuff, not even included in the seven hours, 59 minutes. Don't you feel good that it's not eight hours? It's just seven hours, 59 minutes, Tim. Well, the problem with that is that media usage reached eight hours and nine minutes by 2022. So this year, we're officially, on average, spending eight hours, nine minutes using non-traditional media. More than that, if you take into account your books and your magazines and newspapers and other traditional media. And then it's projected to increase to eight hours, 20 minutes a day next year. So we're trending still Upward. So we, we jumped up, and now we're still trending upward. Now, I want you to note here, I don't know if you can see it there at the bottom. This says, time spent with each medium includes all time spent with that medium regardless of multitasking. So if you're thinking, well, I'm not really sure if this counts because, you know, there's times where I'm not really paying attention to the music that's on in the background. That counts when you're, you know, working or when you're pretending to work, but you've really got a show on your iPad I've never done that, but I'm just saying, like, if there's an example, if you've ever done that, that would count as that time. You're not really distraction-free in those moments. So when you combine digital and traditional media consumption, we find that media use has risen since 2018 from 77 to around 93 hours a week. This is already more than 50% of your week, but now subtract sleep time. I, I did some math this morning, just thinking, on average, you spend 
six hours sleeping, some people less, some people more. So with an average of six hours sleeping per night, which is 42 hours of sleep per week, that leaves us with about 33 hours a week or about five hours a day where you're not engaging with media. You're spending two hours at church. So that leaves you three hours today. What are you going to do with those three hours? Right? Whew! Feeling good about your life right now? Okay, just, just actually on a serious note about that. I, I just want to invite you to just take a moment, just check in with yourself. How are you feeling having seen the graph and hearing the statistics? Are you feeling anxious? Are you just now just realizing, like, I only have three to five hours every single day? Right? If you sleep in, did I just lose all of that time? Do you, if you're feeling anxious or if you're feeling, if you're feeling defensive, I, I just I want you to hear this. I'm not here to tell you that your media consumption, that media is inherently bad. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we live in a world that draws us to be distracted, that actually raises us to learn the language and rhythm of distraction so much so that when we get into environments where our media is removed from our lives, we actually don't really know what to do with ourselves. Right? So I'd ask you, I would ask you to consider what spiritual value has 93 hours of media consumption per week actually added to your life? I would just invite you to consider that. I'm not making any kind of a judgment call. I'm just asking you to consider, is this making my life more like Jesus, who never had an Instagram account or a Netflix account or any? Did you know that on average an American household has 12 paid media subscriptions? You're paying money to be distracted to 12 different organizations on average. So one of the main reasons that we don't practice solitude and silence is because we're simply addicted to input and to noise. And that addiction produces a second response. I would say that another reason we don't practice solitude and silence is not just because we're addicted to noise, but because we're afraid of silence. We're actually afraid of facing our own selves. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order to not have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order to not have to look ourselves in the mirror. A man who also never had an Instagram account. He was alive during the World War II era. See, we're, we're afraid of looking at ourselves. I think we're also afraid of what God might say if we were to be alone with him. Let me quickly tell you a personal story. When I started my master's program at Life Pacific University, there was a retreat uh, time where we did a, 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 weekly, a week-long intensive on the campus. And I remember going on the campus, and it wasn't until I found out, or it wasn't until I got there to stay on campus in the quads um, it was during summer break. It, it wasn't until then that I found out that they had turned the Wi-Fi off. So I was standing in an empty dorm, in an empty quad, in an empty uh, building with no Wi-Fi. And my entire plan to stay busy while I was away from my family and not in class for this master's program, my entire plan had just been completely thrown out the window. So I'm standing there, and I remember this vividly with a backpack in one hand and a duffel bag in the other. Had all my stuff, right, my, my iPad that I was planning on watching movies on was in there. And, and I, I suddenly, as I'm just standing in the, in the middle of this room, was overwhelmed by the silence of it and how lonely I felt. 
And I was stunned at how quickly this happened. All of a sudden, standing there holding a bag, I began to cry. And then standing in a room in an empty quad on a vacated campus with no Wi-Fi and a plan that has just gone out the window, I, I, I said to myself, what is wrong with you? You can't stand in a room with no Wi-Fi and not cry? What is wrong with you? And so I began to actually ask that question of myself and of God in earnest. And that week became not just a time to be away with my classmates and focus on my master's program, but it, it became a week where I, I received a revelation about my own life, that I had become so addicted to noise that I had become afraid of the silence. And there was a lot of pain going on in my life. Uh, there was a lot of stuff from my childhood that I still hadn't actually dealt with, some stuff in my own life even happening in that season that I hadn't fully really come to terms with and dealt with yet. And I was terrified that if I got alone with God, he would say something to me that I wouldn't be able to handle. And at the time, I had this still warped view of God as my father that I was really honestly afraid of what would happen if I got alone with my father. Because my journey looks a lot like having a father relationship where for a good long chunk of my life, the idea of God being a father felt like a cuss word. And I had come a long way by the time I started that master's program, but obviously I still wasn't healed yet. And I was actually numbing myself, like taking a pill or being an alcoholic and numbing myself with noise just so that I wouldn't have to think. Just so that I wouldn't have to be alone with God. And I was pastoring a church while I was doing it. I, I was hurting. And what I didn't even realize, I, I love this, this quote from Ruth Haley Barton. I realized that this was me. She says, we are starved for quiet. To hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. The reason that quote represents the moment I was in is because I was starving. If you've ever done like a prolonged fast, if you ever do a 40-day fast, they tell you break that fast slowly. I remember Danny, Pastor Danny, our worship pastor, our youth pastor, he did a long fast one time and he broke the fast by going to a wedding reception dinner or uh, like the night before the wedding. We were a part of the wedding party and he ate a lot. And he'd been fasting for a while. And, and then he spent some time in the bathroom. I won't tell you the details, but the point is when you're starving, and all of a sudden you get a massive influx of food, that actually can be detrimental. And the same is true for our souls. I found myself suddenly slammed into silence, and it hurt. And I'll tell you, just by way of confession, in the long run, that was the best thing for me. So that's where that illustration might break down, right? Uh, don't go eat a cheeseburger if you've been fasting for 40 days, go slow. But if you haven't been in silence and solitude for a long time, just get into God's presence, right? And it, it'll be uncomfortable, but it'll be good for you. So we don't practice the discipline of solitude and silence because we're afraid or because we're addicted. But I love the prayer of Psalm 119, verse 37. This should be our prayer where we would go to God and say, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. To learn to be silent and, and present with God in solitude. 
and, and I understand solitude and silence might feel like a kind of death, but it's actually the thing that can bring us to life. Which would then lead us to a final question for the day. What would happen if we did practice solitude and silence? Let me share with you just a few things that would happen if we practice solitude and silence. Because the benefits are, are many. Let me just share with you a few. I think first we would find freedom from our need to be needed. Uh, Pastor A.J. Swoboda, he, is, uh, he references, he wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath, and in there and in some talks that I've heard him give on the subject of, of getting away, retreating, and Sabbathing, and resting, he talks about Moses withdrawing up Mount Sinai when he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and he actually refers to that moment as a lose-lose situation. Because he says, Moses went up the mountain to be with God, and when he came down, the people were worshiping an idol. So obviously he's lost. He's realized he's not a good leader. He had not led the people to know know how to worship God without him being there. There's a huge loss as a leader, right? And yet, good news, God had a plan for how he was going to get the people on track. But then A.J. invites us to imagine, what if Moses came down the mountain to find that the people were still worshiping God? He would have realized he wasn't all that necessary as a leader after all. Oh, you people don't really need me. So that would feel like a kind of losing as well. Now remember how often Jesus withdrew from the crowd. What was he doing? He did this because he wanted to prove that he didn't need to be needed. He didn't need the crowd to validate his identity as the son of God. And he was doing that also to teach us a lesson and to teach the people who were following him to to remember that when he's gone, you still need to follow God. This would be the moment where, as a pastor, I would say my greatest joy as a pastor is when I hear stories of people in Life Church being Christians outside of this room when I'm not around. Yes! The goal, I I don't necessarily want to do this. Let's not run this test right now. But the goal is that if I quit tomorrow, that you would still love Jesus. Maybe even still love each other as a community. I certainly shouldn't be the only thing that calls us all together every Sunday. It should be Jesus. I just get to be the guy that rambles on and on about something that hopefully blesses your life. But we, we don't need me to follow Jesus. So I need to retreat away from y'all every now and then for silence and solitude so that I can remember we're not codependent here. I don't need to be needed and you don't need me to follow Jesus and I don't need the people that I follow to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm thankful for the people that I follow because they're good examples for me and hopefully my life is a blessing to yours and hopefully your life is a blessing to someone else. We get to be a gift to each other. Jesus is the source of our life though, right? So one of our weaknesses as human beings is we just love to be loved. We love it. But regular times of solitude actually push back against this, reminding us that it is God that we truly need to be with. We need to withdraw, if only to remember that the world actually goes on without you. You can go up the mountain and be with God. And whatever happens when you come back down the mountain, let's let God take care of that too. I think a second benefit is if we would actually practice the discipline of solitude and silence, we would hear God more and better. Consider the statistics of our media use that I shared with you earlier. At the very least, a regular habit of solitude and silence helps us break from our media dependence. At the very least. 
So if you want to know how to get free from an addiction to the sounds of the world, practice solitude and silence. But as we turn the volume of the world down, we naturally turn God's voice up. So the more we're in solitude and silence, the more we can hear God. When we need direction, our natural tendency is to begin to curate and cultivate answers from as many different resources as we possibly can. How many books are there on this subject? i got to listen to a good podcast. I wonder what the people at my church want to say about this. Can I email my pastor? And none of those things are inherently bad. But isn't it interesting how many outside-of-God resources we will go to to get an answer to the question before we just... Consider how Moses responds when some of the people from the community of Israel came to him with a difficult question. In Numbers chapter 9, he says, Moses replied to them, wait here until I hear what the Lord commands for you. I mean, and they came with a hard question. And he says, time out. I'll be right back. And then he goes away and he talks to God. He goes away to get with God so that he could hear an answer. Because what Moses knew in that moment is right now in this moment, I can hold my peace if I go get with God. I can give wisdom if I go hear it from God first. Or maybe just think about the significant words and visions where, that were given to the church in moments of solitude and silence. If you want to believe that the more we turn down the volume of the world, the more we naturally will hear God more and better. Right? I already referenced uh, Moses at the trip up to Mount Sinai. Right? Moses goes up the mountain to be alone with God. What does he come down with? The Ten Commandments! You don't hear the Ten Commandments if you're busy on TikTok, Facebook, Fox News, CNN, Instagram, talking with your friends, watching TV. You don't get the Ten Commandments outside of being alone with God. In Acts chapter 10, Peter sitting by himself on a rooftop, and all of a sudden he has a vision. And this vision was a bunch of what he considered unclean animals. And God said, don't worry about the unclean animals. What I'm calling clean, don't let anyone else call them unclean. And this vision actually led to the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the entire world being shared with the Gentiles for the first time. Because up until this moment, the gospel was only really being shared to the Jews. And the early church fathers were thinking like, yay, the Messiah came for the Jews, the Gentiles, mm, good luck. And Peter was the one that got the vision while he was alone with God. There was a guy named John. He got in trouble with some folks and he got exiled to a place called Patmos. While he was there, he was alone in solitude and silence with God. And he had a vision that we like to refer to as the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the last book in your Bible. It's about the ultimate victory of God and his people. That vision didn't come through distraction. It came through solitude and silence. In, in an excerpt from her book called Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, Adele Albert Calhoun writes, Silence offers a way of paying attention to the Spirit of God and what he brings to the surface of our souls. She's saying it has a way of turning the volume of God's voice up in our lives. She goes on to say, as we remain in silence, the inner noise and chaos will begin to settle. Our capacity, our capacity to open up wider and wider to God grows. In other words, she's saying we get stronger at being able to hear God. 
The Holy One has access to places we don't even know exist in the middle of the hubbub, which is a great theological term. Jesus told his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. It is the Holy Spirit's job to keep the inner process of revelation underway. But in order for the Spirit to do his job, we need to cooperate and put ourselves in a place to deeply and reflectively listen. Be alone with God in the silence. Offer your body and your attention to God as a prayer. You don't need to say words to do that. So clearly, solitude and silence positions us to hear from God better and more often. And then another benefit that I would offer or present to you today is that if we practice solitude and silence, we would strengthen the spiritual muscles that enable us to hold our peace. Have you ever played tug of war and found out that you weren't strong enough to hold your end? So exercise, get stronger. Solitude and silence helps us to get stronger at holding our peace. It's just like physical exercise strengthens the muscles of your body, spiritual disciplines strengthen the muscles of our spiritual life. Simply put, doing disciplines is the work that disciples do, and they strengthen us. In fact, Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors and theologians, he wrote, as a disciple, I am learning from him how to live life in the kingdom as he would if he were I. The natural outcome is that my behavior is transformed. Increasingly, I routinely and easily do the things he said and did. I've heard Dallas Willard talk about that in a, in, a, in a conference session at one point, and he said, he said that same thing in another way. He said, being a disciple of Jesus is like living as if he were wearing my shoes, and the more that I live like that, the stronger I become. So Spiritual disciplines, he, would, he described once as being the exercise that we do today so that tomorrow I can do by discipline what today I can only do by force of will. In fact, Willard says about peace that peace is not the absence of conflict. It is shalom or fullness of life. Peace, then, is a rest of will that comes from divine assurance about how things will turn out. So, so Jesus was able to hold his peace on one hand because he knew how this story was going to end. You can kill me. I'm totally coming back. Right? But as we practice solitude and silence, we hear God more and better. We learn what it feels like to have confidence in how things will turn out. We develop spiritual muscles that allow us to rest in knowing that God will work his will. And then we strengthen our ability to hold our confidence and our peace in the middle of any moment. And you know who was the king of doing that? Jesus. There was a time when he said to his disciples, hey, let's go on to the other side. Let's get into this boat and head over. And as they're heading over, a massive storm came out of nowhere. And the disciples did what disciples do. They lost their minds. They freaked out. And they ran to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, we're going to die in the storm. And they found Jesus was sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And they had to wake homeboy up. Because he was asleep you know you are holding your peace if you were a, a nap taker during storms. Jesus then gets up, he looks at his disciples, and he goes, I don't know where your faith went. And then he turns to the 
to the storm and he declares peace to the storm. And you know what happens? Storm stops instantly. Calm. The disciples keep freaking out, but quieter this time. They look at each other and they go, how does this guy do this? The answer to their question, how does he do this or who is he, is that he was the prince of peace. How he did it was he held his peace so he could declare his peace over the storm. We want to follow Jesus' example. So when Jesus' physical life was attacked because he had been a man of peace, not just because he is the Son of God, but because he was a man of discipline, in his life, when he was attacked, leading to his death, he held his peace. And you can as well. Practicing the discipline of solitude and silence is one of the disciplines that will help to empower us to do the same. So before we move to a close, I, I want to ask you to just consider some of the following questions. I'm not going to ask you to answer them for me today. But if you're going to keep thinking about this a little bit tomorrow and the next day, then maybe one of the questions that you could ask yourself and ask God to help reveal the answer to is simply, how much time do you actually spend in silence? Maybe one practical thing you could do is actually look at your last week that you lived. How much time did I spend in silence last week? Or maybe keep a, keep a log. How much are you spending this week if you just go about your normal rhythm? And by silence, I mean uninterrupted time just listening to what God would say, even if what God would say is nothing. Another question I, I would invite you to wrestle with this week would be, what are the things that you do or the things that you use to resist or avoid silence? For me, it's, it's music, it's Spotify. Or it's, okay, you're... I'm a nerd, preface. It's DC animated Batman movies. I have no shame. I'll watch them all day. And then when I'm done with those, I'll just go and watch the animated series because it's the best Batman thing ever made ever and I'm just such a nerd. But I can tell, I, I know what it feels like when I'm watching this because I have nothing to do, or when I'm watching this because I don't want to do the thing I need to do. I know the difference, and I would venture to guess that you probably do as well, and so I would invite you to pay attention to that this week. And then deeper than that, ask yourself and ask God to help give you the answer, why do I avoid silence? Is there something that, is there a conversation I know I need to have with Jesus that I'm avoiding? So I want to encourage you, to actually write in times of solitude and silence into your week. Let's talk about practical ways that you could do that. Just begin with five minutes every day and then build towards 15 minutes every day. Here's how you could very practically practice solitude and silence starting even today. Set a timer on your phone for however long you think you can do it and then add one minute to that. If you're not sure, just start with five minutes. I promise you, five minutes will feel longer and shorter than it has ever felt in your life at the same time. Okay, number two, find a place where you will be uninterrupted. I kid you not, I know a parent of young children who practices solitude and silence in the bathroom. I just need 10 minutes in the bathroom. Or do it 
like Sharon does, before the kids get up, or like I do, when they go to bed. So find that place where you'll be uninterrupted. Maybe it's taking a walk. I strongly recommend it's not in the car. You're just distracted by survival in that moment. Okay, third thing, turn your phone off or at least put it on airplane mode and put away all other media, including your book and even your Bible. Close your eyes if you're sitting still. If you're taking a walk, you can have them open. Um, and, then, and then the fifth thing would be be aware that your mind will wander and do the work to bring your focus back to God as, as it wanders. It will wander. And then as it does, I literally do this, uh, if I'm, especially if I'm walking. Um, if, if I need to bring my focus back to God, in my mind's eye, I imagine all of the things that are distracting me right now kind of like buzzing around my head, and I just go like this. If no one's around, I do it like full arms. If other people are around, like when I'm walking around in public, I'll just go like this. If you ever see me walking around in public and you just see Tim clap, that's what he's doing. I'm just refocusing. It's just, a, it's just a tactile way for me to say, I'm focusing on God right now. Brain, I, I love you, but stop being distracted. Focus on God, okay? So be aware of that and then do the work to bring your attention back to God. Number six, breathe slowly and deeply. Just take a slow, deep breath with me real quick. In and out. Doesn't that feel nice? You get to do that for like five, 15 minutes every day just like that. And then while you're just breathing slowly and deeply, bringing your focus and attention back to God, you're listening to what God might say. And when your timer goes off, you'll probably be surprised that it went off and that it took that long to go off. Then you can feel free to pray. You can sing a song to Jesus. You can say anything. You could just go about the rest of your day because then your time of solitude and silence is done. And then you can come back to that practice tomorrow and begin to work towards 15 minutes or or an hour. Maybe you have a time once a week where I'm going to just spend an hour alone with God. And right now that might seem impossible, but it seems impossible because we're so tied in with the world right now, we can't even do five minutes. Uh, my challenge to you, if you want to hear my stretch goal challenge to Life Church, is, is that by the end of this year, Learn to practice one hour every seven days where it's just you and Jesus, just you and God, complete silence and solitude. Okay. Now, today, before we leave, we are going to practice this together. We're going to do this together. Okay? So put all of your stuff aside. You don't have to turn your phone off right now. If you're watching us online, you don't have to turn your computer off. But I'm going to do a thing. I have a timer on my phone. It's got a bell at the beginning and a bell at the end. I'm going to set this timer for three minutes. And for three minutes, in between this bell, I want to invite you to do two things. Two things. Number one, breathe. Please, breathe. Okay? That's it. Don't make any other noise. If you can help it, don't talk. Don't distract the person around you. If at all possible, just breathe. And number two, bring your focus to God. And every single time in the next three minutes that you feel like your focus is wandering, just bring your focus back to God. You don't need to say anything. If you, maybe you get a prophetic word in this moment, or maybe you'll just hear, hey, it's nice to sit in the presence of God for three minutes, okay? So you're going to hear a bell at the beginning. If you want to close your eyes, that's totally fine. If you want to leave them open, that's fine too, although it's harder with your eyes open while you're sitting down. 
Um, and then when you hear the bell again, I will pray a blessing over you, and then Pastor Sharon's going to come up and wrap up our service. You ready? Okay, take a, take a good breath, and you're about to hear a bell. When you hear it again, I'll pray. God, thank you that you meet us in your presence. For the places in our hearts where that felt like an eternity, minister your presence to us. For the places where that was simply not long enough, we thank you that we can come back to your presence in any moment. Life Church, I pray this blessing over you. May you be aware of God's loving invitation 
to draw you away with him. In solitude, may you be met by the unfailing presence of God. And in his presence, may you come to peace. In silence, may your knowledge of God increase. And in that knowing God, may his heart speak to yours. May you be strengthened to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And as you hold your peace, may you be a blessing of peace to those around you in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen.